You can subscribe and get early access to these shows at truthjihad.com. Just click on the subscribe at Substack link. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to a special Ramadan Karim episode of Truth Jihad Radio. That's right, Ramadan Mubarak, Ramadan Karim. Happy Ramadan to all of our Ramadan-respecting listeners out there. Where I am here in Wisconsin, the sun is about to set, and when it does, Ramadan begins. It's the lunar month of the Islamic calendar, when Muslims fast from the rising of the sun until twilight. No eating, no drinking, no nothing. No hanky-panky, even. So it's pretty serious. Uh, it's not just like, you know, giving up uh, fish uh, or meat on Friday, eating fish, that sort of thing. This is a serious fast. And uh, I'll probably talk more about that during the, the month of Ramadan. But tonight we have a show that is considering big historical, political and medical questions. We just emerged from a scamdemic. In the second hour, we're going to hear about what that scamdemic was really a cover for. Obviously, they've been lying to us about so many things regarding COVID. John Titus comes on at the end of the show, the final half hour tonight, to talk about how the pandemic narrative is nothing but a cover story to conceal from the public what is, in reality, the biggest asset transfer ever. And Matt Arrett will precede him in the second hour discussing the question of whether Russia and China are in on the Great Reset, and, of course, uh, COVID being a pretext for the Great Reset. After all, we just finished COVID, and miraculously, the new panic, Russia, appeared at exactly the right moment to relegate uh, COVID to the uh, pages of history. But there's a connection there, and the lies about COVID and so many COVID-related issues have been documented by a lot of people. But I don't know if any of them have done the job that Meryl Mass has done. She is a biowarfare expert from way back, and she's a leading advisor to RFK Jr. and has been keeping track of the medical lies, scams, and misinformation being put out by most of the establishment on COVID. She recently published an update of her article, How a False Hydroxychloroquine Narrative Was Created. She says that's the most important article she ever wrote. And she's also been looking at the ivermectin study that supposedly told us it doesn't work. Well, it turns out there's a hanky-panky with that study, too. So let's get into the the two hours of dissecting the uh, historical uh, scams and frauds that we're living through right now. Hey, welcome, Meryl Mass. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me on again, Kevin. Yeah, it's it's great to have you on. I really respect the work you've done over the past uh, couple of years, and I hope the historians respect it too. Uh, so, um, what, what's uh, what, what's up? I don't. Maybe it's start with the ivermectin study and then move to your hydroxychloroquine article. Both of these are very cheap uh, COVID treatments that have been massively discouraged, to say the least, by the establishment. And and the details of this latest ivermectin study touted in the mainstream is proving once and for all that ivermectin has no beneficial effect on COVID. 
Turns out there's a huge problem with his study, which is it's supposedly double blind, and yet the the control group that didn't get ivermectin had had this huge rate of non-compliance with the protocols of the study, whereas the ivermectin group had a much lower rate, showing that it couldn't have really been double blinded. I mean, this, this is like a gigantic smoking gun. You have to be an expert in double blind studies to see a huge problem here. What was up with that study? So. I guess um, there were a lot of problems with the study. Um, I, it's hard to even know where to start. So for reasons best known to the cabal, um, there has been a huge effort which began, it started earlier, but really grew steam in August of last year. And that happened right after CDC said the number of prescriptions written for ivermectin had quadrupled in a month and was something like 10 times more than it had ever been, you know, before the pandemic. And I think the powers that be realized that if everybody really started getting a hold of ivermectin and turned, you know, COVID into no more than the flu, that it could cause a problem for whatever else they were, you, you know, doing under the guise of the pandemic. And, you know, we can talk about what those things were some other time. So efforts, huge efforts were made starting in August to kill ivermectin. So first, the, the Mississippi Department of Health issued some ridiculous press release, which got national press. Um, saying that 70% of calls to the poison control center had to do with ivermectin overdoses. And um, when, you know, civilian investigators started looking into that, it turned out that the story was false, and the Associated Press had to print a retraction. And then there was another crazy story out of Oklahoma, and some doctor got somehow quoted on TV claiming that, at least the way the story was framed, that they were having trouble taking care of gunshot victims in the emergency rooms because there were so many ivermectin overdoses that had to be treated. Oh, man. <laughs> they're, they're choking on the horse pills yeah. <laughs> by the thousands. Story. So, um, and again, Rolling Stone wrote that story up. It was widely, you know, reported and, uh, Rachel Maddow tweeted about it. It was also false. In fact, one of the hospitals where this doctor work worked was so upset because they thought people will stop coming to our ER. They issued a correction, basically, and said, look, we've never had an ivermectin overdose at our hospital. So, so who so, made up this this ridiculous story? Well, that's it. We don't know who made up these stories. Some There was a concerted PR attempt during the starting in the middle of August to do this and um, a whole but then within August uh, a bunch of doctors got accused and had some of them had their licenses suspended by their boards of health in three different states again all of them making the national news for prescribing ivermectin and um Professional medical organizations, organizations of doctors like the American Medical Association, the board of the specialty board of internal medicine and some other organizations started issuing 
press releases saying doctors should not prescribe ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine for COVID. This is going to be considered, you know, unprofessional conduct and don't say anything mean about vaccines. And we're going to threaten your license and your board certification if you um, spread misinformation about the pandemic. And then I don't know what the other states did, but in my state, we got a notice from the pharmacy board. Uh, sent to all the pharmacies saying only dispense ivermectin uh, for legitimate purposes. Hmm. Well, that, that could be interpreted in different ways. Yeah. So it was, it was loose because it's a licensed drug for humans. Iver, there, ivermectin is a human drug. It's also an animal drug. Hydroxychloroquine is a human drug. So off-label prescribing, which means using a drug for a diagnosis for which the FDA didn't initially approve it is a super common occurrence. Like 20% of the prescriptions written in the United States are for off-label uses. And it's perfectly legal, and the FDA says so, and the Department of Health and Human Services says, everybody says so, and it's established in law. So how could the system stop the prescribing and dispensing of these drugs? It couldn't actually do it legally. So it had to do it with whispers and threats. Now, who made the threats? These organizations like the AMA and the specialty boards, they are nonprofit organizations. They have no regulatory authority to go after anybody's license. And I am not sure they can. I'd be very surprised if they could claw back a specialty certification from a doctor because they didn't like what that doctor said or because they prescribed, for example, ivermectin, a legal drug. Legally. Um, so this started happening. And then the CDC issued um, an alert on its emergency alert network. Watch out for ivermectin. And it gave two examples, four pages. It only had two examples of one who got ivermectin over the Internet and another who took a animal ivermectin. And they both overdosed and had to be hospitalized. And that was the extent of, of the uh, adverse reactions that CDC was able to drum up. But on the basis of that, almost all pharmacies stopped dispensing it and almost all doctors stopped prescribing it. Wow. So what that was, was the authorities could not use a legal process to stop it because that would have required a paper trail and a long time. So despite legal processes in place to dispense and prescribe the drug, they used threats and intimidation, scare tactics, made everybody read between the lines, and all the doctors and pharmacists figured out, once, you know, if you have had their licenses removed, you figure out very quickly, you're not supposed to do this. And so everybody stopped. Wow. So it's it's uh, the same kind of manipulation that they've used on the entire population, really, uh, using uh, classical public relations techniques or brainwashing techniques rather than reasoned argument, which is what you'd expect in a scientific field like medicine. Exactly. Exactly. So I have come up with the phrase they used extra legal or extrajudicial processes to to get the effect they wanted. They went out outside and around the law. And, you know, this is just one example of what we're living under now. We have a set of laws, but it is the government that breaks the laws, the state or the federal government, or even sometimes local. Um, 
and and we have to put up with that because people haven't figured because the the system of law in the United States wasn't developed to deal with um, crimes when it's the government committing the crimes. Indeed, yeah, and, and of course the uh, government in the United States is heavily influenced by big money. And uh, Peter Dale Scott, who put the term deep state into circulation, pointed out that the very wealthy people who are politically active tend to be above the law. And so they can uh, manipulate the law and commit crimes with impunity. Um, and uh, we could even argue that those oligarchs who, who largely own the U.S. government are currently trying to take over the world, make the world one global oligarchy. And perhaps uh, Russia, China and Iran are opposing that. But that's something we'll get into in the second hour. So <laughs> back to the first hour at Ivermectin. So uh, recently we've, we've seen these headlines about how, oh, it, it turns out that, you know, shutting down Ivermectin was the correct thing to do because it doesn't work. And here's a study that absolutely proves it. And you look at yes. the details of that study and wait a second. <laughs> go, go ahead and, and take it from there. OK, Um this is not the first um, faked ivermectin study that has been used to try to kill this drug. So I, I've written about others in my blog over the last year. Um, this is just the latest. And for some reason, um, the system was really depending on this one. Um, so the New York Times, you know, everyone's the major media have had big articles, big stories about this uh, nail in the coffin uh, ivermectin story from Brazil. It's actually a very terrible study. It was supposed to be double-blinded, but it clearly wasn't. So that's the first thing to know. There were 679, so a bunch of clinics for, I think, someone someone wrote for working class or poor people, um, were where, these, where the trial was conducted in Brazil, in the state of Minas Gerais. And... So 600, so these people went into clinics and were diagnosed with COVID and they were told, we'd like to enroll you in a trial and 50% will be given placebo and 50% will be given ivermectin. Now, think about that for a moment. You're a patient, you're a poor person, you go to a clinic and they enroll you in a trial and you've got COVID. So that means you're scared. You go into a clinic, they say, yeah, you've got COVID and now you can enroll in this trial and you might get the drug and you might get some, you might not. What are you going to do? Well, they're probably going to give you the drug for free. So you might say yes, but then you're thinking, I don't want the placebo. Thank you very much. I've got COVID. Now in Brazil, you can go out and buy COVID. I mean, I have a friend whose girlfriend is Brazilian and she gets COVID, she takes it, I mean, she gets, uh, sorry, you can't buy COVID. You can buy <laughs> Right. And, uh, I don't think there's that much of a market for COVID. No. <laughs> Ivermectin, however. <laughs> yeah. Totally I mean, so thing. she buys enough. She takes it every week. She's been doing that for over a year. Um, it's, it's very easy to obtain. And, and this has been shown in other studies of Ivermectin in Latin America. In some countries, it's actually been given out for free by the governments. But anyway, so. As a result of this uh, stupid way of conducting the trial in the first place, because obviously how many patients are going to go to a clinic because they're worried they have COVID, have it confirmed, and then be told you, we might treat you or we might not? How many are going to go along with that? Well, that, that's so, going to make it hard to do any double-blind study, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You, ha you can't give them a placebo. You have to give them – you have to offer them two treatments that you think are, you know, roughly – 
comparable in order to make it palatable for the subjects. I'm surprised some of those Dr. Mengele's aren't out there, you know, saying, hee, 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 let's let's do it without informed consent. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, you, you could easily do a good uh, double blind study if you weren't using informed consent. Well, precisely. And maybe that's why it was done in Brazil instead of the United States. Obviously, no Americans would go along with that kind of study. So they got their 679 people who got the ivermectin for three days only and 679 who got the placebo. And they say they made them look alike. However, 58 percent of the majority of the placebo subjects admitted that they didn't follow the protocol. So they figured out they were on placebo and they did something different. They didn't take the placebo. I wonder how that worked. You know, maybe the placebos were, you know, maybe they were sugar pills. And so all you do is you taste it. Oh, it's sugar. That's that's not ivermectin. That that happened in another ivermectin study, I think in Colombia, where it tasted different. So the subjects knew what they were getting. Um, So darn subjects. So 58 percent didn't follow the protocol, whereas only about. Seven uh, percent of those who got the ivermectin didn't follow the protocol. Wow! I mean, that that just so proves that it wasn't double blind, you know, not even close. Uh, how could they even publish it? Exactly, it shouldn't have been published. It's a failed study. So then, anyway, they they did all the analysis of the study. They didn't give the people as much ivermectin as we would do today. Um, they gave them only 0.4 milligrams per kilogram. We would now give 0.6, and they only gave it for three days, and we'd now give it for five or longer if they seem to need it. And um, you, you know, probably the control group was getting closer. You know, they were probably getting more ivermectin. Well, so we, right, we don't know what they got because the, the, they didn't ask them what they took. They just uh, asked them whether they had complied with the protocol, and 58% said no. So anyway, and, yet, and, and half the others were probably lying. Right, exactly. Um, then it turns out that a, that the people who were in the ivermectin group still did about 10% better than the people who were in the control group. Now, the study was supposed to go until it found either superiority of ivermectin or futility of ivermectin. But instead, the trial was stopped before they had reached either of those proper conclusions. Because, as I said, the people on ivermectin did 10% better. So they should, so they didn't have statistical significance. Why did the data and safety monitoring board stop the trial at that point? Did they stop it because they were afraid that if they'd taken it further, <clears throat> they would have achieved statistical significance in favor of ivermectin? So they canceled the trial too early when they didn't show that it worked and they didn't show that it didn't work. And then they advertised it as being the proof that it doesn't work. So end of story. It sounds like more of a PR exercise than a scientific study. That's exactly what it was. It was a PR exercise. Yeah. Well, and and that reminds us of some of those uh, hydroxychloroquine studies. Uh, There was one in particular uh, that was just outrageous uh so that was clearly a pr exercise and not even bothering to masquerade as much of a study in the first place and you chronicled that uh long story of the pr war against hydroxychloroquine in in that article that you uh just republished so uh, i guess a lot of those cases were at least as bad as this ivermectin study oh yeah oh yeah the 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 
the crimes that have been committed, you know, we have a lot of Dr. Mengele's to deal with here if, if they ever, um, you know, face, face a jury. Um, so there were many trials of, if I can start the hydroxychloroquine story, it's a little, slightly different than the ivermectin story. Hydroxychloroquine, so there was a SARS-1 back in 2002 and 2003, a very similar virus, also a coronavirus, and it killed 800 people out of 8,000 who, who got it, and everybody was really worried about it. Um, everybody around the world. It was considered a new, basically, biological warfare agent. Yeah, 10% mortality is pretty bad. So 10% is, yeah, is quite huge. And so that occurred in 2002 and 2003. And Fauci's NIAID and all the other countries that could afford it started working on ways of dealing with it if it came back. And in 2005, the CDC and in coordination with Canadian government researchers published a paper showing that chloroquine, which is the almost identical to hydroxychloroquine, killed the first SARS virus in the test tube. So it was proven. And, and they may have published it because Europeans had published it a few months earlier. So there were two groups that showed chloroquine works to kill SARS-1. And then, uh, starting in 2012, another coronavirus, deadly coronavirus outbreak occurred, mostly on the Arabian Peninsula, called MERS, M-E-R-S, or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, instead of Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And that had a mortality rate of 30%. And so, again, all these governments started researching what to do about MERS, and Tony Fauci's NIAID in 2014 and a group of European scientists who were doing the research differently, both published papers in the Journal of Virology showing that chloroquine killed MERS in vitro. The NIAID scientists looked at a bunch of other drugs and came up with over 60 that killed either the first SARS or MERS. And so clearly... A, Tony Fauci's institute knew what was likely to work, and so did the CDC, and so did the Canadians, and so did the Europeans, before we ever had a COVID. And then they all suppressed the use of the chloroquines and hydroxychloroquine. Now, China started, China had 20 different trials going of chloroquine drugs when uh, SARS-2 broke out in China. So they had read the literature. They knew what was likely to work. And here in the United States, people were very quiet about it. They didn't say, remember, in January, February, and the beginning of March, no scientists piped up and said, hey, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine are likely to work on this because they work uh, against SARS-1, at least in, in vitro. Nobody said that. So everybody kept it quiet. And, I, and then Trump said it might be a gift from God. You know, this is the drug to use, maybe, and we have to try it, and Trump used it. And after that, this massive suppression started. And that suppression included several trials that were designed, deliberately designed, to give people just up to what would be a fatal dose of hydroxychloroquine who had COVID. And these were uh, these were several massive trials, One and and... 
There's no excuse for it. Nobody could have made a mistake. I mean, that, that's just it's, it's so bizarre. I mean, what, what are they trying to prove? OK, uh, you'll, you won't die of covid if we give you this dose of hydroxychloroquine because it's the HCQ that will kill you. Right. So nobody will die of covid. We'll, we'll kill you with the, with the cure. I mean, that's so crazy. Could they have possibly been making a mistake or where do they get this dose? So it looks like they got the dose from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So that tri- the tr- so two huge trials, one in the UK and one in about 30 other countries, um, started. And the UK trial enrolled 1,600 people in their hydroxychloroquine arm. And the other trial, that was called recovery. And the solidarity trial, which was run by the WHO, which is a good reason not to trust the WHO on anything, um, enrolled about 1,000 people on this excess dose of hydroxychloroquine. The WHO was warned that the Indian, um, basically Indian, India's NIH, the ICMR, warned the WHO that the dose was too high. And the former head of the ICMR had moved to the WHO, and she was one of the top dogs, um, Sumya, uh, what's her name, Swaminathan. And so she ignored them. So they were informed ahead of time the dose was too high. They started the trial in March, and simultaneously, a trial of chloroquine was started in Brazil, uh, coincidentally. And the Brazilians tried a normal dose of chloroquine and a high dose of chloroquine. So they had two arms. They had, you know, they also had probably a, another arm, but they had a normal dose and a high dose. And within a very short period of time, they had 16 people die in their high dose arm, which was about 40% of the subjects. Well, I mean, and that, that leads to the question, since uh, hydroxychloroquine has been used for other things uh, for a long time, and it's pretty commonly prescribed for malaria, isn't it? I mean, how, how could they not know what these dangerous doses are? That's the problem for the WHO, because I was able to dig up a 1979 report written for the WHO uh, on what is the toxic dose of, of chloroquine. And they studied this. They studied hundreds of overdoses of it would Somebody had written a book in France in the 1970s about how to commit suicide. And chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine being over-the-counter drugs um, were considered an easy way to commit suicide. So a lot of suicides in that period of time uh, especially in France, were done with the chloroquine drugs. And so this um, researcher, consultant for the WHO, was able to look at hundreds of cases of chloroquine overdose and determine what was likely to be the lethal dose. And I'm sure the, the oafs at the WHO and in the UK who do, and at the Bill Gates um, Foundation had no idea that this 1979 study existed, but it did. And um, so I'm sure there was a lot of embarrassment about it. And the the WHO trial, after I informed um, authorities of the WHO, that if they had not disclosed that the dose was known by the WHO to be toxic and possible and borderline lethal, they had not disclosed that they could be liable for damages. And uh, three days later, the trial ended. Wow. 
So, so you might have actually helped end that trial and saved some lives. I may have. Um, so anyway, both of these trials use this ridiculous dose, which is um, several times. So most drugs you can, t- ivermectin, you can take 10 times the normal dose, and it's not really going to do too much to you. It's not going to kill you. But with hydroxychloroquine, it has, uh, it can cause potentially car- a cardiac arrhythmia, which can kill you. Now you now there are many drugs that can do that. There are at least 50 drugs that can do exactly the same thing. So it's most of a risk when you're taking multiple drugs that all have this effect. But if you use, say, four times the normal dose, which is about what was given to patients uh, on day one, they gave the bigger biggest dose on day one of the recovery and solidarity trials, um, you don't even need to give them other drugs that cause this effect because it's too much. However, there have since been three review articles published about this exact same subject. Is this, does this drug cause sudden death or cardiac arrhythmias in people when, when given at the normal dose? And there are many Westerners who take it daily for lupus or for rheumatoid arthritis and there is no evidence in these three reviews that they die at any higher rate from sudden deaths or arrhythmias. So it seems that it's perfectly safe if you take the prescribed dose and it isn't if you take four times as much. Um, there were 400 people who, who died in that overdose arm of the recovery trial in the UK, in the four countries of the UK. And the WHI only admits to about 100 people who died in their trial. So I don't know how to explain. One, they gave the same dose, supposedly. They treated people supposedly the same. And 25% of the people in the UK arm of the trial died. But WHO says only 10% in their trial died. Hmm. Now, so in this Brazilian, so the Brazilian trial started in March and immediately people started dying and they they killed 40% in the high-dose arm. And they published it. I mean, they told people about it. They warned the world. And it was published online in the JAMA, in the Journal of the American, American Medical Association, by the middle of April. So the, reco- the recovery trial and the solidarity trial had no excuse that they didn't know that high doses could kill because there it was, published in the JAMA. And yet, neither one of them stopped their trials un- until June, when it became, you know, much more commonly known. And I, among others, were was complaining about it. I wasn't the only one. It sounds like serious uh, scientific malpractice. Yeah, manslaughter. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And you know, when if we if we were to speculate that someone actually might have known this and wanted a negative result from the studies you know one way to get a negative result is to have a lot of people in yeah yeah the people getting the drug die uh right. that's not and exactly so that going to make the drug that, look effective right and on may 22nd you know so so that's being you know they i'm sure they want so initially i'm sure the plan was to have these trials publish their results and say hydroxychloroquine kills you know more people are dying in the hydroxychloroquine arm than in the control group. And that did happen in both recovery and solidarity. But instead, once people got onto them, 
I'm sure the people in charge realized, hey, we could be charged with manslaughter. So instead of playing up all the deaths in our trial, we need to play them down. So then, you know, when they published their results, it was like, well, you know, basically not statistically significant, you know, non blah, 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 blah. So they, they made it look like there wasn't much difference between the control group and the hydroxychloroquine. And they didn't, they didn't crow about it. But simultaneously, you had the paper come out in the Lancet, which was a total fabrication, which got advertised, you know, every major media outlet, I think in the world, covered that story. Hydroxychloroquine kills based on this supposed 30 or so percent increased mortality in a, a worldwide database of hospitals, except the database didn't exist, and uh, the paper was was a fake. And how did it even get into the Lancet? And it took two weeks. I mean, hundreds of scientists said, wait a minute, this this paper is impossible. The database doesn't exist. You've got more cases in certain countries, in certain hospitals like Australia, You've got more cases of COVID than, exi- than we've counted. So how could that be? And anyway, so the, the paper and, and another paper by the same, by a similar group of authors or an overlapping group of authors were retracted from the New England Journal and the Lancet, both published in May of 2020. However, the publicity about that paper completely tainted the well for hydroxychloroquine. So the man on the street only heard hydroxychloroquine kills and, and they went away with that and they, they were frightened. And so my patients have been, you know, when they got COVID and I said, well, we should give you this. They'd be frightened. Isn't that the drug that kills, you know, or isn't that the Trump drug? Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, it's amazing to, you know, you can't um, you can't beat that back if you are able to mount a concerted, you know, publicity campaign against the drug and you're willing to just produce complete falsehoods with, with no scientific backing whatsoever, you, you can convince the world. Well, that retracted Lancet study is, is pretty bizarre because it does sound like they just made this stuff up. Uh, it, so who are, who are these authors who are signing on to studies that just make stuff up and have to be retracted? So um, the first author was a young vascular surgeon, 40 years old, Indian-American, who was very ambitious and had created a lot. Even though he was only 40, he he was known to be a kind of a pathological liar. And he'd also created a lot of companies. The company that supposedly collected this database and published this data only had five employees, one of whom was a. Uh, I don't know what you call it. One, one was a science fiction writer and one was an erotic model. And, um, it sounds like a, a colorful company. It was a, it was a really, um, colorful story. And how the New England Journal and the Lancet, the two top medical journals in the world, both were induced to publish these articles from a database that nobody had ever heard of before that claimed to represent over 600 hospitals on six continents and have real-time records of 90,000 patients with COVID. I mean, I, 
I, you may have interviewed me about this already, but yeah, I, yeah we we have talked about this. I it's, read it's the so study stunning. and I I read the first page and I said this is bogus. I mean, it was so obvious. You know, if such a database like that existed, you would have known about it. Or if since you hadn't heard about it before, you would check. You know, you'd go to the website and check and try to find out something. You can't have a database. I mean. But how could so BMJ? It's so difficult. And, <laughs> and how many hospitals in, you know, in Africa and, you know, Southeast Asia are going to have real time uploads of all their data with translations into English, you know, in real time? Yeah, I mean, how can these journals like Lancet and, and BMJ exactly, actually fall for this stuff? Exactly. There's Bizarre. so much fraud had to be involved. And none of them uh, ever acknowledged that they'd done anything wrong. You know, I mean, they, I think the Lancet said, well, you know, maybe we have to improve our peer review, but <laughs> come on. Lovely. So, you know, there had to have been pressure applied to get these articles published. And nobody, you know, I don't know what the pressure was. And there's been no no investigation. Nobody cared to look. You, you would think that somebody might go to jail for something like that. but uh, Yes, I yeah. would think so. I mean, if, if I just make stuff up uh, <laughs> about a, a medical issue where huge numbers of lives are at stake and somehow con a leading medical journal into publishing total nonsense that I just made up, I would expect some consequences. That's right. You would think the government would investigate, right? It's a criminal offense, but nobody investigated. And the the number one author of the two papers um, – Mira, uh, what's his name? His last name is Mira, M-E-H-R-A. I've forgotten his first name. Um, who was a cardiology professor at Harvard. Um, he still has his position. So he didn't really get into any, he got embarrassed, but he didn't really get into any serious trouble. Wow. That's, uh, it's just mind Ma- Mandeep Mira. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, so this, uh, ongoing scientific fraud, uh, kind of there's a whole there's a pattern here and in the second hour of this show i'm going to be talking to uh, matt arid and john titus about their their takes on sort of the geopolitical and larger economic issues around this uh pandemic and and great reset and uh, you know their opinion of course well john's at least is that the pandemic was basically a financial swindle or part of an ongoing financial swindle and then there are other views that they were mainly pushing the vaccines because, of course, the vaccines make a lot of money and hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are not under patent. So you can't make a lot of money off of those. So there's that that theory as well. And uh, I, I know you probably would rather not speculate too much about the non-medical issues, but I'm wondering if anything sort of jumps out at you as you know why there would be the fix. The fix would be in in such a huge way, uh, you know, covering a lot of different institutions, uh, leading scientific journals and so on. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what you just asked, but well, well I could spe- speculate about the motives for this fraud. There's this, you know, obviously this massive fraud, uh, to- to- these bogus scientific studies that are being <laughs> promoted and touted, uh, huge PR effort. There's sure. obviously a let, huge let amount of money. My, let me tell you how my mind worked. I said, OK, they have these huge 
trials that are poisoning people. I mean, WHO collected in one month $108 million for its trial. Imagine, I mean, that. imagine how many entities could potentially be, you know, gone after for having participated in this trial and how much it costs. So um, how much how much would it cost to um, design and carry out a trial that poisons people and shut people up when they, you know, raise issues? Um, if you read the hydroxychloroquine article, I list over 50 different ways hydroxychloroquine was suppressed, including an explosion at the world's second largest um, active pharmaceutical, pro- the second largest factory that made the raw ingredient hydroxychloroquine, which was in Taiwan. And when you add together, and so, and all, um, all of the developed nations just about went along with this. So they suppressed the use of helpful drugs. They enforced the use of, of vaccines. They enforced all kinds of restrictions like, you know, sending people home, closing business, etc. that really scientifically were of no benefit because this is an airborne virus. And, um, yeah, keeping people in their houses will stop the spread. That's true. But um, telling people they can shop at Walmart, but they can't shop at the mom and pop store, which probably has better ventilation than Walmart, you know, didn't make any sense. And keeping people six feet apart when the stuff can stay suspended in the air potentially for hours or days doesn't make sense. So anyway, if you look at all the heads of state, heads of health departments that were apparently in on this and um, the vaccine manufacturers and the all, all of the infrastructure that got involved in enforcing the pandemic narrative and the and the measures that were taken to deal with the pandemic officially in the world, you're looking at, you know, many, many billions of dollars that had to be spent to gain the kind of control of the systems that was needed to enforce the measures that were enforced. Okay. That tells me that the people, the, the group doing this bet the farm. They did this because they intended to win. There was no going back. I mean, like I said, if if you start looking at the people who were willing to poison people in hospitals to to blacken the name of hydroxychloroquine, um, they can be hung. Uh, So they didn't do this just for vaccines. They didn't do this just so they could sell remdesivir. I mean, those things, you know, Pfizer made $38 billion last year on its vaccines. And a few billion was made by remdesivir and $20 billion by Moderna. But the cost of the pandemic is, you know, in the hundreds of billions. So it's not about that. That's just a small piece. And I think you're going to get into that with John Titus and um, Matthew Eret, uh, that the pandemic, if it, we don't know whether it was created to occur at the moment it did or whether it was an accident, but it certainly was employed to bring in all sorts of new things. And 
Those include, you know, a new monetary system, uh, a new way of, of doing business, you know, trans, more transhumanism, uh, new kinds of vaccines that were never, ever used in humans before. Uh, the ability to tell people if you're not vaccinated, you can't be hospitalized, which has occurred in some countries. You know, a whole new almost system of law that's being brought in as if the old system didn't exist and we're just bringing in these new rules and you're going to you're going to suck it up and live with them um, because we have a pandemic. So we have these rules in place that say our other rules don't apply when we have a pandemic. And so, uh, I, you know, I think this was very big, but I can't tell you uh, who did it or what the purposes are. I can just look at some of the pieces carefully and say this looks like it had to be part of a much larger whole. And to imagine how they would pull it off, you know, you kind of have to think that the um, the media is controlled, that the leading medical journals are are controlled, and that somebody's with somebody with billions of dollars to throw away is creating all of this. So that's yeah. so, uh, that's a I pretty mean, high level conspiracy. So it's the the. Medical journals were already controlled by pharma because pharma buys their advertising and buys their reprints. So they would all go under if they didn't play ball with pharma. Same for the TV stations, right? Uh, I think Kennedy said Roger Ailes said in a non-election year, 70% of their advertising for the evening news is pharma. So if they present news that goes against pharma, they lose that advertising. So that's easy to understand. How do they control heads of state, you know, and and high officials? Well, you know, maybe that's where Jeffrey Epstein came in. I mean, there there are many ways to control people. And if you're convinced you need to, I mean, nowadays, if you can actually insert child porn on someone's computer from a distance and then go investigate them for that. Last week, a former gubernatorial candidate in Maine had a bunch of, Nine police cars show up at his home to search it for child porn. So I'm not saying whether he, I don't know whether he's guilty or not guilty, but it seems to me the police don't have to uh, place bags of drugs in your house anymore. If they want to arrest you and you have, and they have no basis for that arrest. Now they can just insert porn. So there are, you know, deep concerns about whether our, you know, electronic um, milieu uh, is is consistent with the rule of law as we knew it. Well, that's a good point. Well, we, we have uh, less than 10 minutes left, and I wondered if you had any thoughts about the controversy over the U.S.-sponsored bioweapons labs in Ukraine, and there's been a big to-do about that with Victoria Newland basically confessing that they exist and uh, Russia breaking out documents and uh, claiming that they found various things there. Um, there was a, an article by Jeffrey Kay that kind of went over this from a pretty uh, objective viewpoint. Uh, have, have you looked into that? I, I wish I'd read the Jeffrey Kay article. Yeah, sorry. I should have sent that to you ahead of time. Uh, so there are, let's go back to corruption. Um you know, we live in a corrupt country and a lot of people are getting kickbacks. 
And kickbacks serve several purposes because you can control, once you've kicked back to people, you can control them, right? Now you have a file on them. So any, anyway, if you have a, an, a lawless country, which is what Afghanistan was for so many years, you can do all sorts of corruption there and it, it, nobody's, you know, nobody's going to be able to investigate it or deal with it. And that, the same was true in Ukraine. So one way for the United States to give kickbacks is to spend government money in Ukraine. And one of the things they decided to spend money on was biolabs. Now, it's not at all clear to me that you're going to find the best scientists in 30 locations in the Ukraine to actually do much with the samples that are collected. But you certainly can collect samples from, you know, the wild animals and the people in the areas. You, it's very easy to collect samples. And um, you can test them for virulence. And then you can give the best ones to Peter Daszak or or uh, Nathan Wolf or somebody else like that. And they transfer them to or, you know, in a diplomatic pouch and they get transferred around. And some of them will wind up at U.S. military facilities. I mean, it's it's already clear that Peter Daz, one of Peter Daszak's many jobs was to facilitate the transfer of virulent um Bat viruses, for instance, from different countries. He had he had associations in 31 different countries with bio labs to collect and, and sample and do various things for him using federal funds. So anyway, these some of these bio labs were built or run or in some way managed by a company, Metabiota, which is a company founded by Nathan Wolf, a professor at Stanford, who was associated with Peter Daszak. Who was who else was he associated Small with? Small world. Jelaine Maxwell. Oh boy. He was, he was on the board of her philanthropy and um there's lots of photos of him with Jelaine. Um and so he's getting money. So so this so the amazing thing is Hunter Biden's company funded him to manage bio labs in Ukraine. Hmm. <laughs> Nothing to see here, folks. Uh, <laughs> so you've got you've got Fauci to Dazak to Nathan Wolf to Epstein and, and Maxwell to and and on another you know tangent you've got Hunter Biden. Yeah, and I mean, who who needs conspiracy theories anymore? <laughs> Pardon me? <laughs> who needs conspiracy theories anymore? Right. So it's all out in exactly. the open. Exactly. So what this did is so you got all these biolabs. So the United States is spending many millions every year for on them. And so Nathan Wolf gets a big cut and Hunter Biden gets his cut. And then the question is, how dangerous is this stuff that they were studying in these biolabs? The Intercept put out what looks like a kind of a, an establishment debunking, you know, claiming, oh, this stuff wasn't really very dangerous, so the Russians are exaggerating. But uh, according to this K article, there were quite a few uh, bioweapons there. I mean, there, there was, there was uh, Shigella, uh, dysentery, there was uh, Salmonella. Yeah. And right. other, so other it was an- supposed to be anthrax, African swine fever, tularemia, and other things. Now, you can find these things all around the world. So, and they've been, you know, since World War II, countries have had samples of all these things. The question is, do you have a particularly virulent strain? You know, do you have your vaccine-resistant strain or a 
antibiotic resistance strain or in some other way, excessive virulence. And and what have you been doing with them? Now, there there have been a number of African swine fever outbreaks in China in the last several years, which are serious because you have to kill a lot of pigs when you have one of these outbreaks. Cuba had to kill half its pigs, something like a million pigs. And it's um, funny how, how, how these things seem to hit countries that the Americans are angry at. Yeah, exactly. So I guess what I'm saying is the fact that they had these organisms to me doesn't mean that much. Um, but we still don't know why, why exact, what was really going on in the, you know, the United States has had those organisms for at least 70 years in our freezers. So, but what was really going on there? Mm-hmm. And was it just to kick back money to Hunter Biden and Nathan Wolf or, you know, and and Jeffrey Epstein, perhaps, or was, you know, what was it? Or was it just a provocation against Russia? Um, it's it's very, you know, without really talking to the scientists, uh, hard to know. And the Russians were worried about the studies of how bird migrations could be used to spread this disease. And they were worried about collecting uh, Russian and Slavic uh, DNA especially in light of the PNAC uh, Rebuilding America's Defenses document saying that they're they're looking forward to the day in the not-too-distant future when uh, ethnic-specific biological weapons will become, quote-unquote, a politically useful tool. So, I mean, if I were the Russians, I think I would be paranoid, too. So, and that seems to make sense. But let me tell you, um, South Africa, right? You don't think of them as the bastion of science. They were looking into... Uh, you know, gen- biological weapons that would work only against blacks. Uh, and they went to majority rule in 1993. So we're talking about the 1970s and 1980s. This kind of research has been going on forever, Kevin. So and it's probably, they probably already have this stuff. They, yeah, exactly. Everybody already has this stuff and everybody already knows about bird migrations. And yes, there, these are issues. But they're very old issues. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's kind of amazing that we have it all died out in a bunch of biological strikes and counterstrikes already. Uh, it's, and- it is amazing. I mean, our own bio lab in Galveston got flooded, you know, destroyed, partially destroyed in a hurricane. The um, the bio lab at uh, Plum Island off the coast of Long Island um lost its power on multiple occasions and lost its negative pressure, you know, and released organisms into the environment. It, it's on an island, but um, accidents at all at all these places happen, and they build them in stupid places. Like, why would you build a biolab in a hurricane-prone area? Or Manhattan, Kansas, why would you build the, the U.S.'s premier biolab for uh, livestock pathogens in the middle of, you know, an important livestock area. Right. And so uh, we knew better in World War II. We used to do most of this research offshore. Um, th- there was an island off the coast of Mississippi where a lot of it was done, Plum Island and some others. But we, the hubris, you know, there's a bi, there's a dangerous yeah. biolab in the middle of Boston. Yeah, there yeah, and they, and they, they built it. Right. Uh, you and, know, and, we, we and, sent they got, they got the money. Oh, and anthrax to uh, like a hundred countries. 
without right, inactivating right. it. And after the anthrax attack from our own bio-war sector, uh, they got the money to build a ton more of these labs. Well, uh, the world has gone completely crazy, and the bio-war sector is perhaps the classic example there. Well, thank you so much, Meryl Nass. I appreciate your fantastic work. Uh, keep it up, and God bless.